Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Chicago Business Podcast. I am your host, Drew Sakula, and today we are presenting a special edition, a conversation with Mark Curran, the Republican nominee to replace Dick Durbin, representing Illinois in the United States Senate in the November 3rd election. Mark has a unique perspective, having served a career in law enforcement, including 12 years as the Sheriff of Lake County. In addition to talking about criminal justice reform and the code of silence among police officers, we discussed appropriate use of military force, the environment, immigration, and ideas on how to pay for all the spending, including eliminating the carried interest tax loophole and a necessary increase to estate taxes. Although I happen to be related to Mark, I do not agree with all of his positions. However, I do believe that all are entitled to be heard and develop their own opinions and should do so. I also believe that nobody has all the right answers and we need to come together to reconcile each other's perspectives in order to move forward and create a long-term solution to the inequities inherent in our society. Everyone needs to reflect internally and consider how they can help be part of the solution. But that's just my two cents. Please listen to what Mark has to say. Develop your own opinions and take action. And of course, I would appreciate the opportunity to host an episode with Dick Durbin, the Democratic candidate, and we'll reach out to his office to see if he will do it. With that, enjoy the show. Mark, nice to have you here. Thank you. Chicago Thank you Business very much. Podcast. Thank uh, you, Drew. My pleasure. Um, <clears throat> very excited to have you here. The uh, the uh, U.S. Senate candidate on the Republican ticket going up against uh, Mr. Dick Durbin uh, here in November. So, welcome to Chicago Business Podcast. Great to have you. Thank you, Drew. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. So, yeah, what is our sure. exact relationship? So, I'm first cousins with your mom. That's right. Makes so, us. First cousin removed? Or? Once removed, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, it's, uh, I was excited to see, uh, yeah, see that you were running. I saw that you won uh, quite the, quite the uh, run, I guess it's not technically a runoff, but felt like it, right? Five, five ca- yeah. candidates there uh, for the primaries? So, the Republican primary had five candidates, and I got 42%, and the next closest was 19 points behind me, so it was a nice win. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, quite quite formidable. I saw you had lots of uh, endorsements there as well, and uh, that was uh, that w- that was quite the uh, all the newspaper endorsements. You know, I got a lot of uh, big endorsements throughout the state. So yeah, that was great. Right, but you got your work cut out for you now coming up for November, right. huh? No question about it. So that's great. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I got a bunch of stuff I'd like to. Uh, to to run through and um and cover with you because i think that uh although you are uh yeah are related i do plan on uh oh, you know fine. i that's i think fine. that gives me some a uh, yeah. little bit of leeway to get you with yeah, absolutely. uh absolutely. I, i've already been working on you a little bit uh before before we're on camera here but uh but uh i'll uh, i'll try not to be uh too uh too rough with you here so <laughs> anyway um 
No, that's great. Maybe if you could start by just talking a little bit about, you know, your your record, your qualifications. Of course, you know, you were the sheriff of Lake County there for for 12 years, three successive terms. And um, if you can talk a little bit about your your record and what makes you, uh, you know, the right the right candidate or how you got here, that'd be, that'd be great. Okay, so uh, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, moved to Chicago when I was uh, approximately two. My mom passed away, and, and uh, I actually moved to Chicago when I was uh, six months. I'm sorry. And then a couple years later, my, my uh, um, stepmom, um, my dad got remarried, and, and I have three half, uh, two half brothers and a half sister. And um, so Drew's grand parents, uh, specifically his grandmother, was my dad's sister, and then, you know, what have you, and so the, that's the connection. I, uh, I went to Loyola Academy in Wilmette. We lived on the south side for a little bit, then I lived up in, mostly in Lake County, went to Loyola Academy in Wilmette, went to Spring Hill College, a Jesuit College down in Mobile, Alabama. How did I get there? Well, my dad said he'd pay for any Catholic college, so I was trying to find one in a nice place and uh, happened upon Spring Hill. So uh, then I went to IIT Chicago Kent for law school. I worked briefly in private sector in, in uh, capacity at Continental Bank, which is now defunct. It's uh, where Bank of America is at the corner of uh, LaSalle and Jackson. And really started my career off in the Lake County State Attorney's Office 30 years ago. I was a prosecutor there for eight years, went through the ranks, tried a lot of murder cases as a prosecutor. Then I went on to the Illinois Attorney General's office. I was hired to start up a criminal division by Jim Ryan. And I worked there from 98 to 02. And I tried cases throughout the state of Illinois. I tried murder cases down in Jonesboro and, you know, way the heck out in uh, Adams County and all over the place. Um, in 02, I went out into the private practice of law. I was a conflict public defender. So now I wound up getting appointed on a lot of murder cases. I had a really a lot of really high-profile cases that I was representing people on. I had a private practice of law, criminal practice, and I represented Ford Motor Company locally. And so I had a mixed bag of things that I did. In 06, I was contemplating running for state representative, and I was approached to run for sheriff. And I, I did that instead. Ran for sheriff, won the primary, then won the general election. Uh, I switched parties in 08, from Democrat to a Republican, and then I was re-elected in 2010, 2014, and 2018. I had the highest Republican vote totals in all those elections. Uh, 2018, I'm sorry, I did not win. I, I lost by 137 votes out of a quarter million, <laughs> and um, but I, I had 30,000 more votes than any other Republican. In 2018, I uh, had been up by 1,000 votes on election night. And we went down to Florida for Thanksgiving two weeks later on, I think it was November 20th, they counted the late arriving ballots by mail. And uh, my opponent got 75% of those and I lost by 137 votes. So I haven't done the math, but that's gotta be like 0.01% or yeah, something chances, crazy. <laughs> well, we looked at the possibilities and we, you know, when we saw where the ballots were coming from, we said there's no possibility. Everybody said there was no possibility of my losing and uh, wound up losing. And so I uh, went back into practice of law. I had some opportunities to do different things. I could have you know, gone for a judgeship. I could have run for state house in a much easier race that uh, I, should have, I would have won. 
and instead I chose to run for U.S. Senate. And, uh, like I said, five-way primary, and I beat them all, and now I'm, I'm the nominee for United States Senate from uh, Illinois. That's great. That's great. So, got to ask, you know, we ran through that pretty pretty quick, but let's talk briefly about the whole switching parties. So, uh, that was back in 2008. Can you give us just a little more color about that and what drove that decision? Yeah. So, I was a Democrat candidate, but I had been voting Republican for president. You know, the Supreme Court was important to me, and I'm very pro-life, and I wanted to make sure that... Um, it was a good chance the pro-life justices would be appointed. And as I ran as a, as a Democrat in that cycle in 2006, I just saw the direction of the party. I saw it going further and further left. And I spoke with people, and, and the general consensus was stay where you're at. You know, party switchers get killed. They're going to come after you. And I just said, well, as a matter of conscience, I, I just can't. I, I don't like that the direction of the Democratic Party, and I'm just going to switch. And I did, and, uh, you know, that was that. Right, right. I get it, I get it. So um, <clears throat> one of the things, looking at your background, that I that kind of jumped out at me and um, was, and uh, you were the first uh, sheriff ever to uh, spend a week in your own jail. So. Right. A little was it a full undercover boss experience before yeah. that or you can watch uh, some videos if you want you know I can pull up from there's a lot of the old videos got you know gone they don't stay up forever but there's still old YouTubes from Fox News and from Channel 9 and from others uh, when I was spent that week eight days in jail and um, you know, I, I wore the prison garb. I slept there, you know, every night. I ate the food. I did, did whatever a prisoner is supposed to eat and do. Um, but I'm six foot five. I'm a big guy. I'm recognizable. So it didn't take long for most of the inmates to figure out who he was and, and what have you. Yeah. What did you learn through that experience? So what prompted it was, um, you know, in the book of Matthew, uh, Christ says, uh, I was in prison and you visited me. And I had spent a lot of time with Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson, for those of you that don't know, he was a former uh, White House counsel for Richard Nixon. He wrote a book called Born Again, which is one of the best-selling books of all time. So many people attribute their conversion story to it. He started Prison Fellowship International. And uh, I attributed it to the Holy Spirit. I was just inspired, and I decided I was just going to spend a week in my own jail. It wasn't so much to learn, you know. I mean, I knew what we did in our jail, what have you. It was more to uh, be able to uh, draw attention to the fact that we need to give people second chances and that we're not doing things right as far as incarcerating people in America and, you know, how often we're doing it and the fact that uh, there's so little valuable programming and so little valuable um, input given to them. So... When I got out on the last day, one of the reporters said to me, uh, started asking me about the question that you just asked me, would you learn? And, you know, it was basically I didn't learn anything. And I started talking about, you know, the need for second chances. And he said, well, if you were going to, uh, if that's all you were going to do, why wouldn't you just call a press conference and uh, talk about that? And I, without even thinking, I said, because you, you wouldn't come. You know, so the story was that I spent a week in my own jail, and it was packed with media from all over, and while I was in jail, you know, 
CNN, uh, the um, you know the uh, the CNN equivalent overseas. The you know the, everything was all it was uh, crazy how big the story went. So, okay, the um, so in terms of on the political spectrum, then where do you you know we're going to get into a lot of details sure. and talk about sure. specifics, but from a high level. You know, how do you describe yourself? So, I mean, I would describe myself as uh, somebody who's a faithful Catholic, and that drives my political perspective. And, and so, I don't like these. Uh, you know, are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you this? Are you that? Um, you know, what I tell people is that when Moses, uh, you know, came out of the uh, when uh, our Lord came out of the bush to Moses. He didn't hand them a party platform, you know, it wasn't, uh, there's nothing magical about these. So I, I'm just trying to be, you know, somebody that, that uh, is, my perspective is based in natural law, but it's also based in uh, what are we doing for the marginalized, those that are on the outskirts. Right. So that drives it. So, I mean, what am I, I'm, you tell me. <laughs> well, I, I, let's let everybody make up All their right. own mind as, okay. as we kind of talk through the plat sure, sure. You know, platform in specifics. So, um, so I think we can go ahead and kind of uh, get into that. All right. So before we get too much further, let's go ahead and introduce the beverage of the day. We, uh, again, had a nice time out on the golf course earlier, just there at Oak Brook uh, Golf Club. And so... Late this afternoon here, it's after four o'clock. It still qualifies for the uh, for this Lagunitas daytime uh, IPA. Only three carbs. So yeah. this was your selection. Thank you. So it I was my you... selection. And it's only got like ninety calorie, ninety eight calories. So two more than Miller Lite. <laughs> there you go. All right, I got you a glass if you'd like. Thank you. I don't need a glass. Okay, I'm, I'm old school. I in some combination of the two. But I do like a glass. Oh, I should use a coaster though. Okay. So. Oh, what the heck. Yeah. Talk me into it. Nice light beer on this hot day. Although it started raining. We got off the golf course for some time as well, we huh? We did. We did. Tastes pretty good, huh? Does taste good. Let that settle, and then we'll have a nice little right, cheers. Right. Okay, so with that, though, let's go ahead and talk about, you know, the uh, one of the hot topics that everybody's really, it's top of mind, and that's really kind of the, uh, you know, criminal justice reform and related issues, as we've uh, found, you know, in the news here. There's a, a, lot, uh, a lot going on there. I'm sure you have a very interesting perspective with 12 years served as the sheriff and, and a life in law, law enforcement. So I'd like you to uh, kind of give a state of the affairs on criminal justice reform. I know we actually did make some progress in that uh, in terms of federal laws uh, and not too uh, distant future, but it seems like we have a long way to go. So if you could share your perspective. Right. So President Obama commissioned that 20th century policing and, um, 21st century policing, excuse me, and uh, put some good people on it, and they came out with some proposals and recommendations. But, you know, generally speaking, what I'd say about law enforcement now is the training is better than it's ever been. 
uh, so much is invested in training right now, and you know it's so much more than they had historically and what have you. And so the training is really good. Uh, the bigger departments, basically all of them, require a college degree. You know, Chicago Police Department requires 60 hours. So, you know, I suppose you can go to school for 60 hours and not get a degree, but why would you? Um, and then um, Illinois State Police requires a college degree. So they're, they're headed in that direction. So you see the professionalization of, of law enforcement happening. And, you know, you hear this about psychologicals and what have you. I don't know a department that doesn't do a psychological, you know, that you'll... You have to do a psychological and a uh, lie detector, you know, as part, as part of a standard background. Um, they'll do a background beyond that. So the screening is actually uh, way beyond what it ever was. And you have some uh, accountability now. You know, in Illinois, for example, they have this, uh, when President Obama was in the state Senate, they passed legislation that mandated for all traffic stops that they had to fill out those racial uh, profile sheets. So you see how many, you know, African-Americans are being stopped and what have you. And um, so there's so many checks and balances. And so what I would say is, um, having managed all of those people and having been around cops my whole life, is um, there's bad cops. You know, there's bad people. And it's kind of like, you know, well, we're teaching a business ethics class. Well, that's okay, because I already made up my mind that I'm going to steal as soon as I get out into business. Uh, that's the way it is. You know, you have people that you can train them to death, and you can teach them this, that, and the other ethics, but they're just rotten human beings. And they made it through, and what have you. Uh, the one thing that I'll tell you that I, I think virtually any department of any size has is a uh, is a code of silence. There's no question about it. I My department had it, and as sheriff for having been sheriff for all those years, I can tell you this much, Drew, I had two people that would actually call me and check in on me once in a while. And I had all these other people like they knew I was a person of faith, so they'd come in and they'd say, you know, hey, can we pray the rosary with you or what have you? And I would. And if I were to call them today, they wouldn't return my call. So it's a really, really lonely job because if you do it right, you really shouldn't have any friends because, you know, you might have to uh, fire or discipline that any one of them any, on any given day. And you want to be fair. You want to hold people accountable. So... Um, the reality is that, uh, you know, asking someone that has a gun and a badge, typically an alpha male, uh, that telling them that they're done and that you want their gun and their badge by the end of the day, that's, uh, these guys don't go quietly in the night. You know what I'm saying? Like, in your business, you know, hey, things aren't working out and maybe you better go find something else. Well, the bigger departments have a college degree. I could never get it past my merit commission. So some of these guys, you know, most of the guys before, all of the guys before me didn't have a college degree. And they're making $125,000. And there is no way they can make anywhere near that money in private sector. So for their last, till their last breath on earth, they're trying to destroy you. So even as I run for U.S. Senate and I'm gone from the office, I still have these 
jokers from you know the past to come out and troll me. So it, it uh, and then you know it, what Tom Dart said when he he's the sheriff of Cook County when um, that essentially everybody he'd fired he lost the arbitration on. It was like impossible to get rid of anybody. So you know you have liberal arbitrators and then it, uh, they lose before the arbitrator, then they have a chance to go into circuit court and they may have a judge that's sympathetic to them because he you know knows whatever. And so it's not like private industry where you just fire people. It's, it's virtually it's very, very, very difficult to fire people. And then you know you're coupling with the situation, especially you know you're a chief in a big city. They don't last very long. They last, I think, I'm not sure if they have three years or something like that on average. And a sheriff, you know, he's got to run for election every four years. So there's no long time tenure typically. So, okay, this head guy is going to be gone. And then they're going to put new people in. And then they're going to come after me. So I'm going to, you know, be Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. I see nothing. I see nothing. And, you know, that's the reality is that, you know, you know, Edmund Burke said that uh, for evil to triumph, all that needs to happen is good men to say nothing. Well, that is clearly what happens in law enforcement. Okay. That doesn't give me a lot of, of hope or positive vibes <laughs> on, on how we're going to get this, uh, you know. So what I would say about that, forward. so what I would say about that is I don't see racism towards, certainly not towards blacks. I, I just don't believe it. You know, like I said, you have the racial profiling sheets. Everybody has a camera nowadays. Dude, so, so a question on that. In terms of the ra racial profiling sheets, is that document just the stops or what happens after the stops? So it documents the stops, but, you know, they have body cameras now. You know, we all had body cameras with, that they're mandated to turn on. There's in-car squad cameras that, you know, automatically uh, kick in. You know, all these people on the street, they're allowed to film and video everything, so they have their own cameras. And so all you have to look at is the numbers. There's so small number, you know, police uh, shooting of African-Americans. It just doesn't happen. I'm going to concede to you that there's probably racism that still exists, but it's usually towards Latinos. You know, they, they assume they don't have papers. They assume they're not, uh, you know, they're not documented. And, you know, and for whatever reason, you see the same thing, you know, sometimes with the you know, the far-right rallies that, you know, uh, when they start screaming about immigration and what have you, that, that um, you can see you can see it in their tone, that they're really angry. And that happens in law enforcement. But not blacks. I just don't believe it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be as objective as, and honest as possible. I just don't see it. And so, I mean, what are the, what are the facts behind that then? When you say you don't see it, you're saying you're, you're looking at data... Um, or you've had access to the data. This is a pretty... So I know. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're living in a country that elected Barack Obama twice. Okay? African-American. And the Republicans, they love it when, like, you know, the Candace Owens or, you know, some black uh, shows up and, the, and they're throwing bombs and, you know what I mean, and what have you. So they, they think those people are the greatest thing that ever happened. So I don't think that... Um, it's just not, you know, I mean, I'd love to say that it, I wouldn't love to say what it happens. I have no agenda other than to speak truth. I, I don't see it. Tell me, tell me what, you know, they, they've said that before when, uh, if there was racial incidents, bring them to us. 
it's just not happening. So the, you you know probably know a lot of bad people. I know a lot of bad people. I know a lot of bad cops. Is racism what drives them towards blacks? No, they're just nasty. You know, they're looking out for themselves. They have angry personality, antisocial, off the charts, um, and they don't have any spiritual. The danger, you know, I, I always why I draw it back to faith is that. You know, you give a guy a gun and a badge and he has no spiritual life, um, nothing to center him, you know, he can become pretty dangerous, a guy or a lady. So what do you attribute the disproportionate um, makeup of, like, in of the prison population? In the, in the, in, in, so that's one question. Another one is, from a prosecution perspective, you spent a long time in the state's attorney's office as well, do you think that there's racism there, or do you think that that is a fair system? So I, I think it's, you know, black males make up 6% of the, of the U.S. population. They account for 44% of all homicides. Uh, so there's a disproportionate number of, you know, crimes being committed, obviously, right there. Uh, Johnny Cochran, who was O.J. Simpson's lawyer, said the color of justice is not black or white, it's green. So you got a public defender because you don't have a lot of money. And the next guy's got Johnny Cochran, and a lot of it is, you know, just, you know, I know the prosecutor, I know the judge, I'll get the deal, uh, the better deal. And, you know, because I can take him to a, a basketball game and for a steak dinner and what have you. Public defender's never gonna do that, so here's your crappy deal, public defender. And here's your good deal, Johnny Cochran, whoever's representing them. So that does happen. Is the criminal justice system uh, have flaws for which it's unfair, sure. Uh, could a judge whack a, a black guy harder than, a, you know, a judge has a lot less accountability than a cop than a white guy? Sure. There are some of these judges just probably racist and it's easier for them to get away with it? Yes. So what I'm saying is it's harder for police to get away with racism also. So the, 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 problem, the flaws in the criminal justice system would be in the judiciary. In my, you know, to a large extent, and also prosecutors. I mean, you get these prosecutors; they've been there for, you know, thirty years or twenty-five years. Um, they have a, a worldview, a mindset that, you know, all everybody's bad, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send them away and what have you. And I think it's a disservice that they didn't have to spend any time representing people and doing that. They get to stay in those offices that long and and, you know, wind up being such a hard ass. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about bad cops a little bit more then. So this cop in Minnesota, he had been gotten in quite a bit of, uh, there have been several reports, over what, a dozen reports of misconduct that had been filed. Why was he not previously held to account for his actions you know, once again, you get into the whole uh, um, union and, and what, you know, protection and what have you, and, you know, it, it's a battle. I guess the, the other thing that uh, in his situation was that, excuse me, Amy Klobuchar was the district attorney up there, right? Right. And she didn't prosecute him on any of this. So there was a district attorney in Lake County, Illinois, that was there for 20... You know, he, 22 years maybe he served as, as the district attorney, the state's attorney for Lake County, Illinois. 
I can't think of one case where he ever indicted a cop for police misconduct. Ever. So that's the other danger. You know what I mean? Your, you, your worldview is so limited that um, you, you're working with the police and they do no wrong and, you know, and what have you. So there are a lot of people that think that way. And having had my job and having been honest about it, I can tell you there's a lot of really bad people that are cops. So how do we hold them to account? Well, um, you know, like I said, somebody posted this the other day, and I thought, you know, that's exactly right. The, the public sector union is probably in some ways the greatest enemy of Black Lives Matter because they have all this accountability. I mean, they have this, all this protection that makes it so hard to, to uh, hold them accountable. And, um, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, I think that you know we need people sell out for a lot of different things. You know, you look at you know Black Lives Matter is uh, aligned with Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood is put in the inner cities to increase abortions of minorities. And the founder of Planned Parenthood, her design, her vision that she articulated was that um, we could eradicate minority babies from from uh, the earth. And um, they're living it through. Three out of five pregnancies in African-American communities, that's, they end in abortion. So they're committing genocide on their own people. Their political numbers are going down, down, down because they're a smaller and smaller percentage of the population. You know, I said that the moment with Barack Obama, that might have been their highest moment, you know, politically for a long time. Just, you know, if, if they looked at that as, you know, a black guy became president. Just because they're not, you know, without... If they're alone and they don't align with other groups, there's just not, you know, there's just not that many of them anymore. There's less. Mm -hmm. Well, man, that doesn't give me a whole lot of, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure where to go with that. You know, there's, I guess, several t things come to mind. I guess, I, first I want to take a step yeah. back a little yeah. bit on, you, you mentioned Amy Klobuchar's comments on this, and she's been, um, you know, uh, you know, definitely questioned and as to why she didn't do more up there in Minnesota um, when when she had, uh, I think she was responsible uh, for some of what the department, I guess, or the uh, the prosecutions, I should say, uh, during the period of time um, that many of the uh, the complaints for this uh, particular officer had come through. She had meant, she had said that uh, one thing she would do differently would be to present the case directly to the judge instead of taking it to the grand jury. I'm interested in hearing your perspective on, do you think grand juries are the problem? That has got to be like one of the, if that's what she said, that's got to be like one of the worst lies I've ever heard in my life. So there's an old saying that a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. So the way a grand jury works is um, they're impaneled, and the proceedings, there's a portion that's on the record, and that's the portion where they're uh, either questioning a witness or they're actually giving the probable cause for the offense of the crime. But there's all kinds of... Uh, components of, of the grand jury being in the courtroom, being in the grand jury room, and the prosecutor just off the record telling them things, talking about the case, what have you. 
And so that for that reason, a prosecutor can get a true bill or an indictment on any case they want. So the grand jury is never an obstacle from that perspective. Grand juries are better for complicated cases because you can subpoena witnesses to a grand jury and they either have to testify or they, they take the Fifth Amendment. Um, and you can, keep, you can conduct that proceeding in secret. So you got one witness, you're locking in that witness, and you want to use that witness's testimony to get other suspects or other witnesses, and word's not going to get out, excuse me, because it is a secretive proceeding. So, I mean, she's, it's like silliness. Yeah, no, I thought so as well. Well, you know, what I'd also say is that George Floyd, I mean, I would have indicted that that same day. I would have charged it the same day. He would have been, that officer would have been in prison that day. There was no reason to wait around. And they said that's the fast. So there are a lot of prosecutors out there that just don't have the guts to do the right thing. That's the fastest we've ever charged a police officer. Well, that's still pretty pathetic. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much variation there is between states of the... Uh, of the different, you know, first degree, second degree, third degree murder. I don't know if those are uh, consistent across states or not, but the second degree murder, like I've noticed in the papers here, or you know, in the in the notifications I've gotten from from the Tribune, there's been multiple cases of of um, you know guys who happen to be black related to. Uh, well, deaths that have happened with uh, related to the looting things. There was the um, the chase through the city just the other day where uh, they caused a death, uh, a traffic accident and a death. And there was also uh, related to the Cicero uh, looting incident. Someone uh, was killed. In both cases, they were charged with first degree murder. I know that... Um, I know that that generally means that there's some kind of uh, predisposition or some kind of plan, premeditation involved. Like, does it make sense that second degree murder is, or that those guys get charged with first degree murder when the uh, the George Floyd yeah. cop is a second degree murder? Or I don't know if that's something. So yeah, the statutes are all over the place. Every state is different. You know, clearly they're the federal statute. There is no federal murder statute, but um, the uh, states, they vary the way they describe what's called first-degree murder or is called second-degree murder somewhere else, what have you. Um, for example, in Illinois, it's first-degree murder if you intended to kill, if you knowingly did an act for which there was a substantial probability of death, but, you know, um, and that, that's what followed. That's still first-degree murder. And if you commit a felony, a forcible a, a felony, a certain enumerated felonies, and somebody dies in the course of that felony, that's first-degree murder. Second-degree murder is involuntary. Uh, so that would be, you know, like a heat of passion. And somebody walks in on their wife and in, in bed with another guy, and they don't have time to really, you know, think it through, and, and they wind up killing them, you know, what have you. That would be a second-degree murder. Uh, reckless homicide, you know, that... Uh, be is another offense so you know these things all get grouped and they all get they all get classified differently okay no that's uh that helps so back to 
how do we fix this? And we got lots of others uh, of other stuff to talk yeah. about, but I think this is, you know, this is a big one. There's a lot of talk out there about, you know, defunding the police. I, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on defunding the police? And if it's not that, if it's the you, if it's the the public sector unions, then, you know, how do we make that happen? Yeah, those are good questions. So if you defund a police department, then the sheriff becomes the police for that area. So the sheriff in most states has a constitutional authority, has a constitutionally given role of which the legislature cannot get rid of absent a constitutional convention. It's a constitutional office. So the sheriff is required to uh, patrol if there's not a, uh, a police department there as the sheriff does in all the unincorporated areas and contracted areas. Including here? Right. And uh, I foresee that as something that's going to happen in the future because you see municipalities saying, wow, we can't really afford this anymore. Let's just hire a couple sheriff cars for coverage instead and we can get rid of this building and we can get rid of all the other costs and everything else. So that's going to be a trend that's going to happen. I think you know people have to answer, how much police do you want? Um I think a lot of people get pissed off. Why are they stopping me for a seatbelt? I mean, give me a break. I pay all this money in taxes. If I don't want to wear a seatbelt and I get killed, oh, oh well, isn't that on me? You know what I'm saying? Um, so a lot of people are, don't want the law enforcement to be all over the place and feeling like they're living in a police state and they, they threw up all these red light cameras and everything else to try to get into your wallet and what have you. So there's a balance between that and, you know, um, do we want the Wild West again where there's one sheriff and he deputizes a couple people as need be and, you know, most disputes are settled in a saloon with, uh, you know, who's a quicker draw. I mean, that's, do we want to go back to that? I don't, you know, I mean, people have to answer that question. How much government do they want? I don't think that, you know, defunding the police uh, is the world that I want to live in. You know, I want to be protected. And most police officers are good guy, good guys and ladies. You know what I mean? Like I said, there's a bad element. Uh, there is a code of silence, but you know most of them are good people trying to do their job. What do you do about that code of silence? You know, once again, you just—I mean, if I had to do it over again, what I would have done as sheriff, and if I ever do it again, I'm going to bring more people in from the outside, because you don't want people that you know went up, came up through the ranks with. Uh, together because their loyalty is never going to be to the guy at the top. It's going to be to the guy that they've known all these years, especially when they're thinking, oh, he might be gone, and then, you know, then I won't have any protection. So why would I even align myself with him? So mm -hmm. they don't do that. Um, Anything else in the public sector unions? Public sector unions? I don't want to be anti-union. You know, the problem is that, um, you know, the... the Public sector unions typically give all their money to far left Democrats. You know, so they let's say they elect uh, the public sector union elects uh, Tony Preckwinkle, and then Tony Preckwinkle, on behalf of the taxpayers, negotiates the contract with the public sector unions. So where's the how's that working out for the taxpayer? And then you know you couple that with the fact that. Um, these contracts are written in such a way that it's very, very hard to discipline. And so there's a lot of problems, at least in uh, with trade unions and what have you, you don't have that same thing where 
they're negotiating the contract with with the people that they give all the money to when they help get in office. So does that seem like a problem to you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's uh I don't know, you know, it's Chicago. Right? Yeah. That's a tough one. Right. It's a tough one. Because I don't think they're going away. So I'd like to say on a lighter note, but I'm sure, not sure that sure. it is. <laughs> In fact, I know it's not. So yeah. another top of mind um, issue and what we were all focused on before criminal justice uh, reform. It's kind of what's going on with COVID-19 and and where we, uh, you know, where we find ourselves today. I know you've been pretty vocal in your uh, feelings on Displeasure. the shutdown and everything. Yeah. So why don't you uh, share some of your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I have three boys, 22, 21, and 16, just turned 16. He'll be a junior at Carmel Catholic in Mundelein this year. And he's a football player. And if he doesn't get to play football this year, I'm going to, you know, take a battering ram right into Pritzker's office and, you know, bang the door down and grab him by the neck. Because uh, I, I really think that, you know, how they've robbed these children of their childhood is, is shameful. I mean, um, at the end of the day, they cannot get sick from this. You know, I mean, there are rare exceptions, but, you know, um, we've quarantined them forever. We're taking away their ability to, uh, you know, this is a time in their life that they'll never get back. Um, You know, I certainly, I would feel horrible if I was like a grandparent in my 80s or something like that and watch my grandkid doesn't, Get to, doesn't have a summer, doesn't get be with his friends, doesn't doesn't go to school, so doesn't learn the lessons on the re, the correct way, doesn't get to play baseball all summer, doesn't get to do there's no pool or parks or anything else, and they're doing all this because of because of me, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd be like, no, you let my you let my grandkid have have his life. That's not right. He's never gonna be he's never gonna be 12 years old again. That's horrible. Um, and then what it's done to businesses and, and everything else, and it, it, just the hypocrisy. You know, they, they clearly didn't care about it during this George Floyd business. But, um, you know, any you know when there were peaceful protesters with regards to the quarantine, you know, it, it, all they, they were calling press conferences every day to denounce them. I mean, they're just uh, very hypocritical. And they don't, they don't accept the science either. I mean, you know, the World Health Organization put out uh, a release saying that masks didn't help. And then the World Health Organization recently uh, put out uh, a release saying that the uh, spread is, is, does not, for asymptomatic carriers, they're not going to spread it. And, um, you know, you look at the bottom line numbers, it, the percentage of people that are actually going to die from this in the, in the United States is going to be below uh, 0.25%. So that's, you know... It's not much different than the flu. It's a little worse, but it's not much different. And so we shut down the economy. You know, there's businesses going out of that are never going to return and what have you. And I, I just think that uh, in the churches, I mean, the church leaders have been horrible. You know, the Cardinal, the Archbishop of Chicago, he's got no voice and acts as though it's no big deal that, that uh, churches have been closed for so long. Yeah, makes a big uh, difference for a guy who uh, regularly attends, like yourself, huh? Right, right, exactly. So uh, it's been tough. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, 
kind of the political leadership then and what, uh, yeah, where we stand there. I know uh, one thing that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier was uh, was term limits. It seems as though you have some uh, some opinions with regards yeah. to those. Where do you stand? So I'm I signed the term limit pledge, and I'm a big term limit limit proponent. Uh, I'm running against a guy who's been in Congress for 38 years, so he's uh, 76 years old this year, and you know he went to Congress when he was 38. He had other jobs in government before that. He's really never had a job outside of government. And um, it's horrible. You know, his wife was a lobbyist, his son's a lobbyist, getting filthy rich. And you think about it. Okay, so here's, you know, his, his office sends out a release announcing the uh, all his uh, grants and legislation that uh, his, his office helped uh, put through in terms of legislation. And his wife was was the lobbying interest on, on the same legislation. It's like you got to be kidding me. So, where once again, where does the taxpayer fit into the situation um, when you know a lobbyist is, is writing checks to the politician and then voting on on the business that, that the lobbyist represents? And it, that's part of the reason why it's it's so hard for small businesses because the playing field is so unfair. These big corporations have all this money to lobby and what have you, so they stifle competition. They write rules that that prevent uh, startups from being able to get in the game. And it, you know, the, we talked about this before. I think the one thing that's not going to sustain is the disparity in wealth and income in America. So we're going to lose that battle. Uh, whether it, we're going to have socialism, we're at some point you see it with the Bernie Bros and the Elizabeth Warren crowd, and Trump ran on this. The disparity in, in, in wealth, it, you know, people got pitchforks. They're ready to go. And uh, most Republicans believe in a wealth tax. So, What are your opinions on a wealth tax? Yeah, I mean, I think we got to look at, we have to look at different things. You know, I mean, um, the reality is, I mean, you look at a business that, we talked about this one company up in Lake County that took all these jobs, shipped them overseas, you know, they had all their manufacturing in China and around China. And they're building, they're making masks in Wuhan right in the midst of this uh, pandemic. And the CEO is filthy rich and not that much of the money trickles down after the first layer of executive pay. And, um, you know, we've killed the middle class in this country. We know in small businesses, the pay is much more... Uh, much fairer in, in these large corporations the pay is not all that fair it's that crony capitalism these people at the top that rob it blind pay the workers not all that well that's right mm -hmm. that's right yeah we uh we have had some conversations previously about uh about ethylene oxide specifically and is that uh is that all relates i know that uh you've taken some um some uh, positions there and issued a press release with regards to. Yeah. Uh, um, so, do you want to help me out on that? Yeah. Just, uh, you know, Medline uh, Corporation wanted to, that's uh, the company we were talking about before, that wanted to uh, clean their mass with that. And we know that there's a, a cancer component that, uh, that ETO, and, and that, you know, until they can find us some studies that say there's not, you know, let's let's not be risking people's uh, health and, and safety 
by by doing it. Right. Yeah. No, I was very uh, very glad to see you come out and uh, with the position and and saying that ETO should not be allowed to be admitted um, in densely populated urban areas. So uh, strongly uh, agree with you there, and was uh, great to see uh, that coming out from you. So uh, thank you for that. The um, <clears throat> Wanted to, we talked a little bit about uh, taxes, and uh, earlier we also touched on kind of the carried, carried interest and in what, uh, in, 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 in that particular piece. Do you have any, um, have you decided any positions on, on carried Yeah, interest? I think that we need to, you know, when, you know, you and I have spent some time discussing that, and I, I think that we need to do, do away with that as far as, uh, you know, venture capital firms and, um, equity firms that equity management that um, are able to uh, pay at that lower capital gains rate that that's not right that I think that uh, they should pay that should be ordinary income and um, we need to do away with that we you know that that's part of what fuels the the great disparity in, in uh, income wealth and income right so there's a couple great uh, great ideas I think in terms of of how we can get to uh, close that uh, gap. There's a lot that needs to be done in terms of, you know, the rich getting richer and the poor, you know, not right. only poor but middle class right. really right. just being taken to the clean yeah. house. So. Yeah, exactly. You have any other ideas on, uh, on on other things we can be doing at this point? Yeah, I mean, that? you know, I think we have to look at tax rates um, and ask, you know, uh, whether they're right or not. Um, you know, we should probably consider a wealth tax, you know, whether or not that's an appropriate piece, you know, and inheritance tax. At 22 million, it's at, they're at 40 percent. At 1 billion, they're at 40 percent. So, I mean, could there be a graduated increase, you know, as, as you get more and more uh, beyond that 22 million number? Um, I think that we, we definitely have to worry about corporations doing what Medline did and just shipping those jobs overseas that there's got to be you know heavy tariffs we got to penalize them we can't make them do that I mean if they don't want to pay the American worker a fair wage then um, you know maybe they shouldn't be in that business and I think that we need to have a, an economic policy and a trade policy that adheres to the principle that if it can made if it can be made in America generally speaking it should be made in America Seems like a logical place to be, especially after all we've been through. Right, here. yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if we get to the point where there's so many American jobs and uh, everybody's making a nice wage and what have you, and then we can afford to, you know, be making more shirts over in uh, whatever, China, India, you pick it, uh, then okay, but, but we're not there. Right. right. America first. I mean, that's what President Trump has run on, and... You know, people look at that as racism and xenophobic, but it's not. I mean, we've been getting killed on trade. And the reality is that um, charity should begin at home. You know, we should take care of Americans first. I'm not somebody that's against any type of foreign aid or doesn't realize that, you know, we could be a good steward with our resources as well around the globe. But um, charity should begin at home. Right. Uh what are your thoughts on immigration and reform? Yeah, I've been somebody that, that has been a big proponent of immigration reform, that we can't deport all these people. 
uh, nor should we deport all these people. The absolute reality is that essentially every business group in America agrees with that. Uh, the problem is we have an element within this party that's not full of successful business people. It's not full of people that are particularly well-educated on, on, the, on the issues, and they seem to think that um, you know, we can just uh, – somehow get, get rid of all these these people that have been here for 20 years and that's fine you know I'm somebody that believes in in you know the family nuclear family you know I mean you take a dad that's been in this country for 20 years and you, he's not a citizen the rest of them are and then put him on a bus to some Mexican city and you're okay with that I mean that's just not right so we need to you know, if they haven't committed crimes if they've been here for a while um, X amount of time, what have you, and then you make it a period, a window where they can avail themselves of uh, some type of status, permanent status. I think that's the right thing to do. And the reality is you're not going to get anything as far as border security and increased funding for all that unless you're at the table compromising. People just don't understand it, though, Drew. It is absolutely ridiculous how thick-headed some people can be. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Uh... We really need to come together and compromise on a lot, with, especially with regards to immigration, because yeah, you know it's a complicated issue, and and we talked about it. That's yeah. what I was saying. If you want to find racism in America, it's directed towards Latinos more than any other group, more so than the blacks. I think and that's not that doesn't mean that the blacks aren't subject to some racism. They're, they're, they are, but you know, I, I see more evidence, certainly as far as law enforcement with Latinos. Interesting. Very good. No, well, not very good, but uh, interesting right. perspective that yeah. I haven't heard elsewhere. So um, let's talk a little bit about the military and and really the deployment. You know that uh, I guess most yeah. recently there was some talk about you know deploying it against uh, looting and and all of that. I know. Well, what's your position on the use of national you know the national guard and then any other. Uh, uh, any other yeah, I, you know, I, I think that the military is not trained to do law enforcement. They really, they really aren't. They're, you know, they're trained to kill. Um, that doesn't work too well in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we have all the de-escalation techniques and strategies, and the training has been phenomenal in law enforcement. That's, you know, the, the buzzword now. We need more training. These people have been trained. The ones that are doing bad things are not doing them because they haven't been trained. So I, I, that wouldn't be my, I don't know what they do. You know, typically in situations, you got to realize I was a sheriff in uh, the only training base and the largest base in, in uh, for the Navy up in, in Great Lakes. And so, you know, when we had a, a joint uh, situation, they always just sat around and listened to us and took their cues from us. They're not like coming in here like with uh, the old days with Patton with the big uh, helmet and the sash and, you know, we're going to take that mountain. It's just not the way it happens. So people, I saw this, uh, these posts, people all excited. The 82nd Airborne was going to come in and uh, and kick some ass and, you know, the Marines and what he It's not, you know, it's fantasy land or, a, um, you know, a Denzel Washington movie, but it's not, it's not the way it happens. Mm -hmm. So where, um, what are your thoughts on, where the military should be deployed then when we look at peacekeeping yeah i think we have to or right terrorism like so, 
I'm totally against all those historical backdrops, and I would say I'm not a neocon on any level. So there was no reason for us to be in the Middle East for the most part. And uh, beyond that, I mean, we have interests around the globe, and we probably should have some presence in different places just to keep an eye. And, you know, in the case that we're needed, there's a place where we can go to. Um, but for the most part, nation building doesn't work. I could speak for the next 10 days as to why that is. Uh, I think that, you know, we should evaluate the, the, the size of the, of the military. You know, with, we need a standing military of, uh, what is it, about 1.3 million right now? Or could we do with a lot less? Could we have more in the National Guard? Um, so all those things should be evaluated. All the, Every country we're in should be reevaluated as to whether or not we really need to be there. Is it in America's best interest? And I mean, I feel horrible about you know people in Afghanistan and Syria, but uh, I don't see there any there being any great benefit for American troops to go over there and, and fight those battles. I mean, there's a problem with the way those governments are set up, and they're not ripe to democracy. That you're not going to be able to set up a democracy there. It's just not the way it works. I mean, I understand the Quran. Uh, better than probably all, most of your listeners out there. And uh, as long as they're going to have a religious uh, state, it's not going to work for, for any type of democracy. So we're just letting young American boys get killed over there for no reason. Yeah. What about, I mean, obviously from a terrorism perspective, we need to, you know, ha have a, well... Not necessarily an overseas presence, but really gets, I guess, into kind of the whole cyber world and information is yeah. really that you think that's where resources that, should be more deployed. Um, recruiting uh, terrorists uh, from the dark web. Well, yeah, just keeping, I mean, in terms of putting resources into, um, yeah, into information Yeah, I technology. think so. I mean, you, you know... What's true? If we're not over there, they'll be coming over here. I think that the better, the more um, persuasive argument is that our being over there has them so upset that it's riling them up to come over here. And, and you look at that, you know, George Bush declared victory standing on that ship, remember, uh, years ago. And, and the reality was that, uh, that I, Iraq is in a worse place now than it was then that they burned our flag, that they can't wait for us to leave, that they hate the fact that we're there. And this is the majorities. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know what, um, what we were doing. So I think that the border is key. I think that resources spent on the FBI and spent on immigration and customs and spent on border patrol and spent on all the different federal partners, ATF, what have you, is money well spent because that's where we're going to protect our uh, safety best is on the homeland. Geographically, we're so far away from these nations that you know they don't pose much of a threat to us uh, from, from where they stand. It's from within the walls of America. Right. When talking about... Uh... How we deploy resources then. One thing we haven't touched on yet 
is infrastructure and you know gets back into COVID-19 and how do we come out of this downturn that we find ourselves in? What are your thoughts in terms of infrastructure spending and also the uh, yeah. the overall rate of spending that we're at? Yeah, I think the rate of spending is alarming. It's it's bad. You know, I mean, for me, everything that drives my perspective is my children. And I, I just don't think it's right that, you know, we're going to spend all this money now and we're going to leave them the bill. It's just... You know, it's, um, you know, my generation. I mean, I have a lower standard of living than my my dad did, but it, my standard of living is fine. Um, but it, you know, you don't want to keep doing that to every future generation, and um, it's, it's just not right. So, and, and it's not right to have China owning America. I mean, it, this is not speaking out of turn. This is not something that's a big hidden secret. They aspire to be the world's one, number one superpower, and they aspire to do it economically. They aspire to destroy us economically. So, you know, the China coming over here and buying up property all over the place and everything else, I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's bad. So we, we, we need to rein in the spending big. Okay. How do we do that and still inv invest in our infrastructure or do you think that that is, we should, that should really be limited? Yeah, so... I'm not somebody that's going to tell you that um, that Social Security and Medicare are going to be, you know, you're going to see big cuts. It's just not, you know, there's no, this country doesn't have a stomach for that. It won't have a stomach for that. And so I'm not going to be the guy that tries to scare elderly people and say that has to be, that has to be addressed because it's just not a reality. I mean, that's fantasy land. So um, that takes away a big percentage of the federal budget right there. I think that um, you know we're, we're going to have to tax more, you know, and, and that's just an absolute reality. Number one, number two, um, I think that uh, you know the other things like the military, the size of the military, the military budget that has to be considered. I think that there's things that we could be doing with, you know, Medicaid. I, I, I'm not saying that it's necessarily going to get that much cheaper though, but you know the combination of Medicaid and the overruns with Obamacare and everything else, that's, that's been a big drag on, on the American budget as well. So there, we have to be very critical and we have to be honest about what can we cut and what can. So, I mean, there's, there's entitlements that people can say all they want, but you know, they, they, you can tune them a little bit. I mean, it's, I, I don't think it would be completely destructive to a slight increase, you know, in, in ages, but, um, um, I wouldn't some like, means testing probably I means mean, testing much better exactly yeah. much better and that would be that would be something that you're exactly why does a billionaire need a social security check right yeah exactly right all right well i think we covered a yeah a great range of topics i really appreciate your yes, time absolutely for my pleasure for people who want to uh find out more where is the best place for them to look so they can uh um, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. It's former Sheriff Mark Curran, candidate for United States Senate. It's Elect Curran is the, uh, is the website. Uh, we're all over the place. We have a presence everywhere. We have a presence on Instagram and all the other uh, modes that you would think of. All right, and you're putting some uh, that website we were talking about earlier. YouTube, we have you're, you're going to be uh, you have some more information that's going to be uh, right. Exactly. So yeah, we, we just uh, 
did a complete overhaul of the website, so it's going to be looking really good. Yeah, great. All right. Well, thank, thank you, you Drew. It's on to victory. <laughs> All right. Well, best of luck. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Thank take you. care. Cheers.